0: If you have um, your Bible, go ahead and make your way to the end of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we find ourselves today. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, that is page 993, and then we'll, we'll flip over to 994 uh, as, we, as we get into that. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll continue on in this series as we get to 2 Timothy, but as we've reached the end of 1 Timothy today... And as the Apostle Paul closes out this first letter to his spiritual son, his child in the faith, Timothy, he, calls, he closes it out with a call to fight the good fight of the faith and to take hold of eternal life. And so it's fitting that we've arrived here today on St. Patrick's Day, uh, because as much as we culturally, at least in the U.S., have buried the significance and the occasion for this holiday under green beer and leprechauns... The real St. Patrick was a man who embodied the good fight of the faith. He was born in Britain, captured as a young man by Irish raiders, and became a slave in Ireland. After about six years, he escaped. But then 20 or so years later, as he was approaching the age of 50, he had this vision from God calling him back to Ireland, calling him to be a missionary back among the people that were his captors. And so Patrick was one who we read about from his biographers and from even some of his own writings in the day. He was one who took the scriptures, the holy word of God, very seriously. And particularly the part where when Jesus said that this gospel is for all nations of the earth, that that meant not just the civilized people of the Roman Empire and and that part of cultured society, but really even the, the, the tribes considered barbarians by those who were civilized. And he took that so seriously that he went and lived the rest of his life there sharing the gospel. Over many years, through many hardships, uh, what ultimately resulted from that were thousands of Irish men and women and children coming to believe in the good work and the good news of Jesus Christ. And with that, Ireland then itself became this great center of Christian learning uh, and Christian mission. That even you and I, whether we know it or not, benefit from today, from the nation in which the, the we live. So, um, as you and I today continue to stand on the shoulders of faithful Christian missionaries and witnesses like Patrick, the one who fought the fight of the faith, who guarded and proclaimed the deposit of the gospel that was entrusted to him, let's re- celebrate the, the real purpose, the real meaning of the day. Happy St. Patrick's Day in that sense of the word, and listen now with open ears to this book that he loved uh, and to this book that we love. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11 and reading through verse 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith, he who, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, Some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray these things. Amen. In this final chapter, uh, which Casey began last week and which we'll complete today, Paul has a lot to say about doctrine, truth that we believe of the gospel, doctrine and money. But in the midst of it, in verses 11 and 12, he concisely but very robustly lays out this threefold grid. For the essential exertions of the Christian life. So you and I are not saved by our efforts, by our exertions. But because of who God is, and in response to what God in Christ has done for us, we are to fight for three things. For holiness, for truth, and for experience. Holiness, truth, and experience. So first, holiness. Holiness. As we've seen throughout this letter, there's a contrast between Timothy and these false teachers that are there in the city of Ephesus. And it's not only a contrast in terms of the content of their message, it's a contrast in terms of the character of their lives. And we've seen throughout this letter that for the people of God, integrity of teaching, the integrity of what we believe, and integrity of life are always meant to go hand in hand. So after pointing out some specifics, conceit, controversy, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, being motivated by greed and the love of money. Paul then calls Timothy in verse 11 to exactly the opposite of those things. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. From a moral and an ethical standpoint, the people of God are people who run. The people of God are people who run. We run away, and we run toward. This is the active exertion toward holiness. We simultaneously flee from sin and we pursue, verse 11, we run toward, in other words, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We run after and we keep the commands of God, as it says in verse 14, unstained and free from reproach. Paul writes a lot about godliness in this letter. We as Christians are to imitate the character of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And though we never fully arrive in this life, we are to, in the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. The New Testament then includes a number of these lists of virtues. Paul, One of Paul's favorites is the triad of faith, hope, and love. And he includes two of those here. There's also the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. There are lists, as we've seen even in this letter already, lists of qualifications of elders and deacons that really apply almost completely to all Christians. And so on. Peter has his own list in, in his letter as well. Collectively, lists like these flesh out what holiness entails. And sometimes specific virtues are included because of the situation into which that apostle is writing in that moment. So, for example, the combination here in Paul's list of steadfastness and gentleness. That's, if you think about it, a really unusual combination. Because steadfastness requires toughness, grit, resilience. Gentleness requires tenderness, compassion. And so, one aspect of holiness mirroring the character of Jesus himself is thick skin and a soft heart. Thick skin and a soft heart. And that's especially important for Timothy in Ephesus, where he is simultaneously going to be going toe-to-toe with false teachers. You need some thick skin to do that. But if you're also going to treat other Christians like your own mother, like your own father, like your own brothers and sisters, you've got to have a soft heart at the same time. The specific virtues might vary, but holiness always entails a running away and a running toward. And so Paul again here picks up the topic of money. Back in chapter, uh, verse 9, excuse me, he addresses poorer Christians who would be enticed by the false promises that money makes. So for them, holiness means running away from the love of money and running toward, as we saw last week, contentment. Down here though in verse 17, now addressing those who already have money, the rich in this present age, running, holiness means running away from the dangers of wealth, and specifically pride or haughtiness, and the false sense of security that material wealth can bring. And instead of that, running away from those things, running toward hope in God. And as Paul says, doing good, being generous, sharing, being rich, not only financially, but in good works. The church in Ephesus, interestingly enough, seems to be a place of considerable socioeconomic diversity. So on one end, as we saw in chapter 5, there are bondservants that Paul writes to. There are widows that Paul writes to. On the other, there appear to be a number of wealthy Christians. And from deep within his pastoral heart, Paul is seeking in this letter to love them all. He cares about not only the spiritual condition of the poor, he cares about the spiritual condition of the rich. Even when their lives look so different on the outside, he cares about them all. And we, in the local expression of Jesus' church, are called to do the very same. The specifics of our call to holiness, of our pursuit of holiness, will look different when we are in different socioeconomic stations in our lives. But every one of us will always be fleeing and pursuing, running away from sin, running toward righteousness and godliness. So for the sake of holiness... What do you need to run away from? As you take stock of your own life, what do you need to run away from? Sometimes God's word will call you and me to resist sin, to fight it, to stand our ground. But other times, like here, it will call us to flee, to get out of there, to put as much distance between yourself and those sins that so easily entangle you. And so ask yourself, what is it that I need to flee Perhaps it is the love of money, or lust, or laziness, or envy, or anger, or pride. At the same time, what do you need to run toward? What aspect of godliness deserves your attention, deserves your exertions right now? Maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's sexual integrity or any other form of bodily consecration, one of the rhythms of grace that we talk about here in the life of our church. Maybe it's service. Maybe it's a deeper love for God and for other people. Whatever it is that is in your mind right now, the things you need to flee and the things you need to run toward, let us always be people who run. Who run because holiness is not first derailed in abject actions of evil. Holiness is first derailed when we linger. When we linger. In the book of Genesis, Abraham's nephew, Lot, he is warned to flee the city of Sodom. God is bringing his judgment against the sin of that city. It's about to be destroyed. And so in his mercy, God sends his own messengers to plead with Lot, get out of here, get out of here, escape this coming judgment, flee. And it's subtle. But one of the darkest phrases in Scripture comes in Genesis 19, 16. Lot lingered. Lot lingered. Knowing the immense danger, hearing this plea to run away from judgment and to run toward mercy, he lingers. J.C. Ryle devotes an entire chapter of his book, Holiness, to this episode. And in it, he writes this. Lot was slow when he should have been quick. Backward, when he should have been forward, trifling when he should have been hastening, loitering when he should have been hurrying, cold when he should have been hot. And of course, this is exactly what you and I do. This is exactly what you and I are prone to do. Called out of sin, called into holiness, called out of judgment and into mercy, we linger. There's something appealing still about that old way of life that causes us to linger when we're meant to run. As educated, modern, 21st century people, holiness can sound to our ears like this antiquated, puritanical concept. But we must never let it become that. Because just as it was in Sodom, holiness is the difference between life and death. These are the stakes. The false teachers that are shipwrecking and destroying themselves and other people in Ephesus. It's the difference between subjecting themselves to the judgment of God and throwing themselves on the mercy of God. So, Don't just read about holiness. Don't just admire holiness as you see it in other people's lives. Flee sin. Pursue godliness. With all urgency, run away from death and run toward life. Second, we fight not only for holiness, but for truth. For truth. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. In this letter, uh, there's often a definite article in front of words like faith or truth or doctrine. So Paul says here it's not fight the good fight of faith, it's fight the good fight of the faith. And that is Paul's shorthand way of referring to this established set of beliefs that already in the middle of the first century have become the standard for faithful, reliable truth. The teaching of Jesus entrusted to the apostles, the apostles then writing it down, guided by the Holy Spirit for our instruction. The original language here leaves open a range of meanings. So when Paul says fight, it might be that he's using an athletic metaphor like he did back in chapter four when he talked about growth. It might also be a military metaphor. It's not exactly clear. Either way, what is clear, it's an exertion. It's a struggle. It's a toiling for this. And just as holiness involves both a running away and a running toward, so also fighting for truth involves both fighting against and fighting for. So we fight for the truth of the gospel. Look down at verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy is a steward more broadly of the church there in Ephesus, but specifically, he is a steward of truth. He's a steward of truth. The gospel is the deposit that's been entrusted to him. He has received himself the pure, untampered, unadulterated message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the very thing that has saved him. It's what he has believed in and is experiencing the salvation of God through. But it's not meant to terminate there. He's not merely a recipient of it. He's a steward of it. He's a conduit for it. He's called to, as we'll see even more as we continue on into 2 Timothy. He's called to guard the gospel and to faithfully pass it on to others who will continue to do the same. So we fight for. We also fight against. As verse 20 continues, avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Nobody who teaches falsely, nobody who lies to you, tells you so up front. They don't tell you that up front. Can you imagine someone hosts a press conference or gives a TED Talk or is a guest on a talk show or something like that and begins by saying, I'd like to lie to you today. I'd like to share a few things that will really damage and destroy your life if you actually go along with them. No one does that. That's why lies are deceitful. And think about this. It's not even malicious all the time. It's often because liars believe the lies themselves. They consider it to be, as Paul says here, knowledge. They consider it to be some secret to life, some code that has been unlocked, even if it goes against what God has revealed about himself and the world. And this is actually the source of sin itself. Back in Genesis chapter 3, before sin was an act of rebellion, it was believing a lie. Before sin was an act of rebellion, it was believing a lie. Even there, the serpent presents it as knowledge. You won't die. When you eat, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. In other words, God is withholding from you. There's something better that he doesn't want you to have. He hasn't been kind enough to tell you that yet, so I'll tell you. And for all of human history since... Rebellion against God begins, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Because it's always presented as knowledge, because it's always couched in terms of something good and beneficial, it's therefore not enough for Timothy, and by extension all followers of Jesus, to only ever present the gospel as another form of knowledge in a sea of knowledges. we we must also at times expose and confront and contradict that which is falsely called knowledge. And this applies to other religions, which is one of the least tolerable aspects of Christianity today in this cultural moment. That Christianity is not compatible with other religions even if people say that it is. It's not compatible with Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Islam, Judaism. Sometimes the argument is made that we all worship the same God and and if we trace the lineage back to certain people, there's, there's an aspect of that where historically that's kind of true, but in terms of the content of the message and who it is we're actually worshiping, it's not true at all. It also applies to groups who consider themselves to be Christians but who hold views that contradict the revealed truth of God in Scripture. And then outside the realm of organized religion altogether, It applies to a lot of self help principles and general spirituality or quote unquote secrets to life and to success. Think of it this way if truth, as Paul puts it here, if truth is a guarded, entrusted deposit, then novelty is a liability and not an asset. If truth is a guarded, entrusted deposit, novelty is a liability, not an asset. So be slower, be appropriately hesitant to embrace things that sound new and exciting. And if someone ever presents themselves or their teaching as unique or a secret or unlike anything you've ever heard before in your life, because you'll sometimes hear it couched that way, then sooner in that moment reach for your boxing gloves than your notepad, because it's probably time to fight. And I was going to add the qualifier, like, of course not literally, except Council of Nicaea St. Nicholas actually did punch a man named Arius in the face for his false teaching. So maybe sometimes it does come to physical, physical blows. Please don't do that. But it has happened historically, I'll put it that way. One specific way to fight for truth and to fight against lies, as Paul refers to it here, is to make the good confession To make the good confession. This is a reference to Timothy's profession of faith at his baptism, at his ordination. Maybe Paul has in mind both. It's not exactly clear. But Timothy has publicly, in the presence of many witnesses, confessed, professed his commitment to the truth of the gospel. And his model, and ours for this, is Jesus himself. As Paul writes, When Jesus stood on trial before Pontius Pilate, One who had the ability to either in that moment send him home or send him to the cross. Jesus did not shrink back. He did not shy away. He did not recant and then repent later. He remained faithful to his confession to the point of death. And likewise, we who are Christians have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That might have come at your baptism. If you were baptized not as a young child but as a professing believer. That might have come when you came into covenant membership with a church. That might have been if you've ever served as an elder or a deacon in Jesus' church. That might have happened in all three of those things for some of you. But even more frequently, if you recite the Apostles' Creed, as many of us did today, this is to make a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When you come to the Lord's table each week, that act itself is a good confession In the presence of many witnesses, you are saying with your words, with your life, that you hang your entire existence on the presence of God who gives life to all things. On Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection accomplished your salvation. And on the Holy Spirit who applies and who seals, who makes that work count on your behalf. Do you realize that's what you're doing when we gather and worship like this? Do you make those statements? Do you make those vows? Do you make that confession with the seriousness with which it's intended? Do you recognize how these things saturate you in the truth, how they equip you to both guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you and to avoid all of the lies that are falsely called knowledge? Hold fast to the good confession that each of you, that many of you, most of you have made in the presence of many witnesses. And because sin is always believing a lie before it becomes an act of rebellion, fight the good fight for truth. Third, fight for experience. For experience, and specifically, the experience of eternal life. Look at the second half of verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, take hold of the eternal life. To which you were called. There's an important nuance in the Christian life between the positional and the experiential. And what I mean by that is when we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus, our position changes from death to life, from old creation to new creation. As Paul puts it in Colossians 1 God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And these positional realities hold true on our best days and on our worst days as Christians, thanks be to God. When I sin, when you sin, we don't get transferred back out of the kingdom of God. When my best efforts fall short, which is a daily occurrence for me, I don't become an old creation again. The gospel is that we trust Jesus' work, Jesus' performance, not our own. And when we do that, our fundamental identity, our position changes. We are now in Christ, and Christ is in us. But where that objective, positional reality rests rock solidly on Jesus, our subjective experience of it can and does vary greatly day to day, season to season. And there's a need for us, not only once, but over and over again, to step into the fullness of what has been secured for us. There's a need to appropriate, or to use Paul's words, to take hold of it. So we most often think of eternal life as this future reality. And in one sense, it is. It's a future that has been positionally secured for us by Jesus. Colossians 3 says, Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. But eternal life is not only about the future. There's also a quality of eternal life, a quality of life that we are meant to experience as much as we possibly can now. And as Paul wrote back in chapter 4, godliness is of value in every way, both in the present life and in the life to come. This experiential reality is what, what we will have fully in the life to come, and so Paul is saying throughout this letter, "Take hold of it now. Take hold of it now. don't wait." Like holiness, like truth, this is an exertion. It's an exertion. It requires effort. And the original word here translated, "Take hold." It conveys a sense of violence. The same word is used, for example, when the apostle Peter is walking on water and he begins to sink and Jesus reaches out for him and takes hold of him. He grasps him firmly so that he doesn't go underwater. It's the same word used when the Roman soldiers seize, take hold of Simon of Cyrene and force him to carry Jesus' cross on the way to Golgotha. It's the same word used to describe the moment in Paul's own life when he is seized, he's taken hold of in the temple in Jerusalem and dragged out and made to give a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's with this kind of force that you and I are called to take hold of the quality of eternal life now. And that same word comes again in verse 19 here in 1 Timothy 6. Those who are rich in the present age must let go of pride, must let go of the false security of wealth, so that they might take hold of that which is truly life. See, it's not like our hands are ever empty. Not really. Not really. As worshipers, we take hold of something, always. We exert ourselves to go after something and to take it by force. Money is a common one, as is power, as is comfort. And when God tries to pry our hands free from these things, like that dramatic but incredibly unrealistic scene in the movie Twister, rather than let go and actually be swept up into his mercy we tie our belts around these pipes in the ground and we and we cling on with a death grip but tight as we grasp these things pale in comparison to the quality of eternal life and we have to let go so that we can actually take hold of that which is infinitely more satisfying and infinitely better the experiential in the christian life it's a landmine in some christian circles including the ones that I tend to be a part of, and maybe perhaps that's true for you too. And since there are some groups of Christians who focus primarily on having experiences, feelings, seeking to gain and maintain spiritual and emotional highs, there are other groups of Christians that have completely stiff-armed feelings and stiff-armed experiences or really anything subjective at all. Now, I appreciate the caution. Subjective experiences and feelings, they are by definition far more fickle far more unstable, far more shifting than objective truth. And the best way I can think to express that to you is this. If I only stood up here to preach on days when my heart was full of joy, when I, when I had a deep feeling sense of the beauty and the worth of Jesus in every way, I would preach to you a lot less than I do. I would preach to you a lot less than I do if, if I only did that on the days that I felt it. We can't lead with the subjective. We can't lead with the experiential. But nor are we meant to ignore it or treat it as this optional add-on to the Christian life. We are instead with force to take hold of it, to fight for joy, to fight for delight in God, to fight for hope, to fight for love for God and for other people. And though there will be many days where the positional is all we have, and praise God we have it on those days, We are never to become complacent with the positional when the experiential is not only possible, but is our charge as the people of God. I don't know if you heard this, but I've really come to appreciate these two verses. Concise as they are, verses 11 and 12 give us a really robust grid for the Christian life. What do we fight for in the Christian life? Holiness, truth, and experience. If we'd be uncomfortable neglecting truth, or neglecting holiness, we should be equally uncomfortable neglecting experiential, and experience and the subjective. Think about what that leads to when we take one of these things without the others. So if we only focus on experience without truth or without holiness, that will make us fickle and gullible. We'll be tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves. If we pursue holiness without truth and without experience, we will become pretentious and self-deceived. We will kid ourselves into thinking that we don't still have serious sin to deal with in our lives. If we pursue truth without holiness and without experience, it will make us self-righteous and hypocritical. We might assent to the truth, but we don't live it, which means at the end of the day, we don't really believe it. Are you, as you take stock of these things, Are you neglecting an essential exertion of the Christian life? Let the word of God remind you of the importance of all three of these things, holiness, truth, and experience, and to call you to fight for all three. Okay, why fight? Why exert yourself for these things? The answer is incredibly simple and incredibly profound at the same time. Because of who God is and because of what he's done. Why fight? Why exert yourself? Because of who God is and because of what he's done. This is what distinguishes moralism and effort and exertion in general from that which is shaped by the gospel. Our efforts, our exertion, our fight is always a response to God and his efforts, his work on our behalf. So in the midst of all that he calls and commands... See, Paul knows. He's written in Philippians chapter 3. He calls people there to take hold for that for which Christ has already taken hold of him. He knows how this works. And so in the midst of all this, as he's calling and commanding Timothy to these things, he can't keep it in anymore. And in verses 15 and 16, he erupts in this doxology of praise to God. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we fight because the final outcome is never in doubt. Threat as they are, false teachers, lies, sin itself will never usurp the king of kings and the lord of lords. God alone has immortality. So we fight to take hold of eternal life experientially because our immortal God has first granted eternal life to us positionally. God dwells in unapproachable light. If it were up to us to approach God, we would be forever lost in our sin. But we fight for holiness because instead of remaining unapproachable, he entered in and set us free to a life where running toward holiness is now the pursuit of becoming who we are and who we one day will be. And no one has ever seen or can see God. Except John 1.18. Jesus, the word made flesh, the one now at the Father's side, has made him known. We fight for truth because the truth has been revealed, has been known in Jesus. So church, run away from sin and run toward holiness. Fight against the lies and fight for the truth. Let go of that which cannot satisfy and take hold of the experience of eternal life. May all of our exertions be a faithful response to the person and work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All glory and honor and eternal dominion be to him. And all of his grace be to you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, in you we live and move and have our being. You alone are worthy of glory, honor, and eternal dominion. You alone are King of kings and Lord of lords. To you, all knees will bow. And in response to your coming near to us in Christ, in response to the powerful work of your spirit in us and in this world, thank you for the redemption purchased by the finished work of Jesus. Thank you that we are called to fight and exert ourselves and give every effort to these things, to holiness, truth, and experience, not to earn a thing from you, but in response to what you've done. But by your grace, by your compassion, by your mercy, fuel our exertions, call us again into the fight for holiness and for truth and for experience. We are so desperate and dependent upon your grace, and so it's a gift to us that you have left to us the holy sacrament of communion to come to your table each week to feast on your finished work, to be renewed in the grace of your gospel so that we might be again sent out, called to fight, called to love, called to be your people in this time and place which you have called us to. So meet us now by your spirit, strengthen us as we come to this table and we pray this in your name, amen.